It's great to be with you all here. I'm going to also start with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight thanking you and praising you in the presence of your Son for the gift of Jesus, for the gift of his presence as Eucharist in our midst. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would stir into flame the gift of your Holy Spirit in our hearts, that we might come to appreciate at a whole new level the gift of Eucharistic adoration. Lord, foster in us a contemplative spirit. Give us that grace of being still to know that you are God. We do love you, Lord, and we long to love you more. We turn to our Mother Mary, to St. Joseph. We ask for their beautiful, sweet intercession, along with that of our patron saints and our guardian angels, as together we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, we focused on the theme of discursive prayer. That's the first stage of the three stages of the spiritual life in the Catholic tradition, is discursive prayer. Prayer where you're using your senses, your body, your voice. And we focused on the theme of praise. And you remember how many choirs of angels are there? Nine. And do you remember which set of angels the, were considered the highest? They were the seraphim, and the second were the cherubim. And what were the cherubim created for? They were created to praise. That is their mission. And their mission is their identity. For angels, mission and identity come to be one. So the very mission of the cherubim is that they were created by God to praise him with their whole being. And so when we take up that act of praising, we're joining in an act of the second highest choir of angels. So as you develop your prayer life, and you become accustomed, and, and you express a sense of devotion, and, and you seek after the Lord in prayer, he's going to take you deeper, and taking you from the senses that you have that touch the world, right, our five senses, the Lord is going to take you inward. In taking you inward, he's going to draw upon the powers of your soul, powers of your mind. So the memory, the imagination, the intellect, and he draws all of them together in that type of prayer, meditation. Meditation or mental prayer. And we focused in on one particular form of mental prayer, which was reading the scriptures. And again, why are we focusing on one particular form of discursive prayer, praise? Why are we focusing on the specific form of mental prayer, reading scripture? The answer is, these are transformative and are often left on the sidelines of many Catholics' lives. And yet the challenges that we face in being missionary disciples, being disciples who will live our identity as Catholics in the world today, we need to draw upon the presence and power of Jesus Christ in our lives. If we are going to stand up, speak out, and push back against those forces that would attempt to undermine and overthrow a Catholic Christian way of living, that's the battle that we're in the middle of. And so we dug into praying with the scriptures. Tonight, we're going to go to the deepest level of prayer, which is called contemplation. Tonight, we're going to go to the deepest level of prayer, which is called contemplation. 
And so the purgative stage, which is associated with discursive prayer, gives rise to and then develops into the illuminative stage, and that's where we focus on meditation. And then that gives rise to and focus, and then we lead into the, the unitive stage, the stage of transforming union. And that's the stage of contemplation or contemplative prayer. So I'm kind of giving you a, a, some theology. I'm like, Don't worry, it's going to get worse. I'm going to go to philosophy in a minute, okay? So giving you a, a little uh, bit of a theological uh, uh, understanding or, or guidance around the highest level of prayer is contemplative prayer. Now, wait a minute. What's the power that we're drawing upon? What's the particular capacity that we have as human beings that we're, that's distinctive of contemplative prayer? If the, the senses of the body are drawn into discursive prayer and the powers of the soul or of the mind are those associated with meditation, well, what's left for contemplation? And the answer is your eye, your sense of self, your spirit. I, Tom, exert myself in this world. I, Tom, have a mind and a body. But that dimension of spirit, that dimension of the, the, the life-giving, vital, animating force that is the I, that also is drawn into the relationship with the Lord. And that's called contemplative prayer. And so when, of course, the I, I am praying outwardly when I praise, I am reading the scriptures, I'm, I'm exerting a kind of prayer that involves parts of my body, parts of my mind. In contemplative prayer, I'm saying to my body, shh, quiet down. And I'm saying to my mind, shh, be still. So that I can just be. Uh-oh. Now we're starting to float into philosophy here. We're going to talk about the idea that contemplation isn't just a theological concept. It's a human concept. In, in our Catholic tradition, and actually in the great philosophical traditions of the world, the contemplative attitude towards life is very enriching. It's profoundly humanizing, and it's one that we've been robbed of today. Okay, let me say that again. I've just thrown out a big statement there. The contemplative attitude, the contemplative way of relating to the world is one that is not fostered or valued or promoted by typical ways of acting in the world. What does that mean? What does that look like? Are you serious? Yes, I am. So first of all, what does it look like? Let me distinguish the contemplative attitude from the what? The more common attitude which we have, which is more scientific. The scientific attitude, we started talking about this a little bit last week, is when you stand over something and you dissect it and you pick it all apart, you're very active in how you are, uh, how you are relating to the thing that you're looking at. That's very different than how you are present at a fireworks display. How are you present on a fireworks display? In fact, what does it take to be able to enjoy a fireworks display? Essentially, you gotta show up at the right place, at the right time, and look in the right spot. 
Now, does your looking cause the fireworks to go off? They, it does not. Right? You're looking at me and saying, Tom, what are you talking about? If you can just be in the right spot and you just look there, all of a sudden, boom, whoa, boom, whoa. That's the contemplative attitude. The contemplative attitude towards life is standing before a reality and being attentive, being on the alert, because boom, something is going to show up. And that's not fostered today. If I said to you, go look at the beautiful flower garden, because that's a fireworks display. You'd say, Tom, what have you been drinking? But the contemplative attitude would say, no, 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 gaze upon it. Just be present to it. And there's something that is there that is going to show up. If you don't dissect it, don't try to analyze it, don't say, oh, those are roses and those are petunias and those are those other things. No, 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 no. No, just be present. And there's going to be a depth dimension that comes out into the open. And the depth dimension that comes out into the open is only going to come out into the open if you are present to it in a certain way. Does this make sense? Okay, again, I'm getting a bit philosophical here. This is all going to lead to Eucharistic adoration. Okay? Let me tell you the great enemy of the contemplative spirit, the great en enemy of the contemplative attitude, is the internet. When the internet and the reality of the digital world becomes dominant... Do you know what disappears? The dimension of depth, the dimension of presence. The di there, are, there are no fireworks displays. It's a screen. It's flat. There's no depth dimension. Let me give you one other human example, and then we're going to go to adoration. Carrie and I have been blessed with nine kiddos. And one of the uh, most delightful things that a parent gets to do is gaze upon their sleeping child. And so I can remember, I go into the room and I just gaze upon John Luke just sleeping. Now, I know he's 16, but... <laughs> he wakes up and says, Dad, that's creepy, right? <laughs> this is not what I'm talking about. A little newborn baby just asleep in the crib, right? A little sleep in the crib. You just stand there and you gaze upon your child. And gazing upon the child asleep, you look and you say, oh, my little baby is sleeping at a 45 degree angle compared to the side of the crib. That is not what any parent says. In fact, what happens is you look upon the sleeping child and all of a sudden there is this evoking in you, there's just something that comes out of you that says, I love this little baby. Right? Just agree with me. Come on. And, and here's the thing. What came out of you wasn't caused by you. What came out of you, I love this baby, was not caused by you. It was caused by the baby. And it happened in you because you were contemplative. You were just present to the child. 
because I was present to the child who's present to me, something emerged. Who that baby is became manifest. Who that baby really is showed up. And that who that baby is showed up. Who she is, who he is showed up. And it brought something out of me. Okay, we get that. This is all, this is philosophy. I'm not quoting Teresa of Avila yet. This is just the philosophical attitude of learning how to be present in the moment. And tonight I'm going to talk about that. I'm going to talk about how we can develop a contemplative attitude in Eucharistic adoration. Why? To quote my philosophy professor, and then I'll, I will stop quoting philosophy, okay? I don't want to put you asleep, okay? In silence, presence becomes manifest. In silence, presence becomes manifest. When I'm still, when I can be still, when I can be silent, when I can be silent in my senses, silent in my brain, when I can be present to the moment, present to the one who's in front of me, the presence of that reality of the one who is in front of me has permission, has space, is now available to become manifest. And one of the greatest swindles of our time is the scientific mindset, the productive mindset, the efficient mindset that says, look at that thing and ask yourself, what can I do with it? How can I pick it apart? What can I manage with it? The joke in my house, when Carrie and I got married, I might have said it before, Saturday morning, we'd get up, Carrie and I, this was before we were blessed with children, and Carrie and I, sitting, she would come by and see me. I would be taking my prayer time. And she'd come by and say, honey, what are you doing? And I said, I'm just contemplating God's beauty in our backyard. And she would just look at me with love and say, can you do that while you mow the lawn? Because the value of that time, the value of that reality is going to become associated with accomplishing some good. Make it productive. Make it effective. Make it useful. You know, the Aristotle's definition of the contemplative act is that it's useless. Did you hear that? It's useless. We think useless and we think has no value. No. Useless means you can't use it for anything. It's not for the sake of any other thing. Okay, now, what I just shared with you is utterly different than what most people really think about in terms of how we live our lives and how we parent. Okay, now, what I just shared with you is utterly different than what most people really think about in terms of how we live our lives and how we parent. Okay, I know I know I see a family here. I'm gonna tell you what we did to our kids growing up. We had quiet times to foster a contemplative attitude. 
we had to prophetically break up the idea, the mindset that said, kids, make your time useful and productive. Yeah, we want that too. But we also want time to be present. How do you contemplate? At a human level, as a way of preparing for the spiritual encounter with Christ in adoration. So we would have quiet times. And it all started off with, who can be silent for 30 seconds? Go. First one to talk loses. This is when I had a bunch of little kids. And then it became a minute, and then two minutes, and then five minutes. And then eventually it was, okay, 10 minutes. Let's go sit in a room together, and let's be still. We're having quiet time. And quiet time was not not making noise. That's how it started. Quiet time was learning to be still. Quiet time was learning to be still, to quiet the body, to quiet the interior actions of the mind. How many times are you quiet in your body and all of a sudden your mind is like So it's learning to quiet the mind and learning to be present in the moment. And then it got to 15, 20, 30 minutes. Yeah, quiet time, kids, 30 minutes. Everyone, you tried doing that with nine kids, 12 and under. We did it for years, at least once a week, if not more. And we would say, learn to be present to what's going on around you, what's happening here, present with you, and what's happening inside of you. And then it was, how do you learn how to listen to the presence of the Lord who is within you and in our midst and at work around us? That was a lot of hard work to get to a contemplative attitude. Why is this so important? I want to read a scripture to you. In the scripture, and then I've got six quotes that uh, I'm going to read as I'm going to take you deeper into Eucharistic adoration. Okay, this is the talk I wish someone had given to me. I'm giving it to you. It's six stages of Eucharistic adoration. How do you go deeper? Well, first, let me tell you why you want to go deeper. See that tabernacle? It's not a what that is there. It's a who. It's Jesus. He's really present there. He's present as Eucharist. Now, you might think, well, who is this Jesus who's present? Well, I want you to think of the last encounter that is had in the scriptures with Jesus. It's not the resurrection, uh, it's not the resurrection encounters. It's in the book of Revelation. It's in Revelation chapter 1, where John goes into ecstasy and encounters the now ascended and glorified Jesus. That's who's there. You want to know who's there? Do you want to know who's present? In whose presence? Hear that word again? Presence. In whose presence we are? I'm going to read the word of God. And you're going to have presented to you the one in whose presence we are. On the Lord's day, I, John, was caught up in ecstasy, and I heard behind me a piercing voice like the sound of a trumpet. I turned around to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. When I did so, I saw one like a son of man. We talked about the son of man last week that heavenly figure that has divine attributes like God's glory. I saw one like a son of man wearing an ankle-length robe like a priest. 
wearing uh, with a sash of gold about his breast like a king. The hair of his head, this is Jesus, the hair of his head was nice and brown. No. The hair of his head was as white as snow white wool. And his eyes blazed like fire. His feet gleamed like polished brass refined in a furnace. And his voice sounded like the roar of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. A sharp two-edged sword came out of his mouth and his face shone like the sun at its brightest. When I saw him, I fell down at his feet as though dead. Why? When someone who is not perfectly holy comes into the, one, in, into the presence of the one who's infinitely holy, it's your very life drains out of you. You fall down as though dead. That's who's there. Have you ever had that kind of encounter with Jesus in the tabernacle? Tabernacle comes from a Hebrew word, tavern. Think of the word tavern, which means, which means what? It means it's a, it's a dwelling place for someone who's not at home. It's a dwelling place for someone who's not at home. Jesus is present here. But it's not Jesus meek and mild. It's Jesus glorified. He's big. He's holding seven stars in his hand. What I'm going to do tonight is walk you through these stages of adoration so that you can nurture this contemplative attitude, this way of being present to the Lord who's present to you. And as that happens, in silence, presence becomes manifest. I tell you, when Jesus becomes more manifest to you in adoration, your life's going to be changed. It will be completely transformed. Simply by letting the one who's here show up. If he doesn't show up during adoration, it's not his fault. And so we want to go deeper. Adoration can transform the church because it can transform us if we are willing to enter into it. Mother Teresa said this, the time you spend with Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament is the best time you'll spend on earth. Each moment that you spend with Jesus will deepen your union with him and make your soul everlastingly more glorious and beautiful in heaven and will help bring about everlasting peace on earth. Wow. Wow. Do we have a greater glory in heaven? Come to adoration. Eternal impact on your life? Come to adoration. That's the potential that adoration has to change your life. So says Saint Mother Teresa of Calcutta. Don't believe me. So let's dig into these six stages.
Okay? The first stage of Eucharistic adoration is, oh, I'll, I'll repeat them all because they're all E words. Okay? Uh, the first stage is external, say it. External. And then we're going to go to exertion, extension, excess, exposed, and Eucharistic. Okay, we're going to go through them quickly. But in doing so, we're going to also go deeper into the reality of contemplative prayer. So the first stage is the external way of attending adoration. I'm in the presence of the Lord, but I'm not present to the Lord. I'm in the presence of the Lord, but I'm not present to the Lord. How many times have you gone to church and your mind just floats away? You know when you're talking to someone who's not present to you. You know that. They're looking you in their eyes, but you're thinking, you're not paying any attention to what I'm saying, are you, honey? That was a joke. All right. <laughs> right? It's the difference between saying, did you hear or were you listening? So one of the biggest challenges that we have in adoration is that we'll come to adoration and we're present there, but we're not present to him. And we can fill up all of the time doing stuff, doing stuff. We can, okay, I've got to pray my rosary. I've got to read this book. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And Jesus is like, hey, hey, what about me? I'm here. Pay attention. I've got something for you. I am here to be with you. And so what we are going to do is learn how, through a contemplative attitude, to have a movement towards the reality of being personally present to the person who is present. He's awaiting us. He's addressing us. And he's answering us. And so... Don't be discouraged if that external stage is where you're at. It's a beginning, but it's not where we want to end. So let's go further. How do we go further? Um, Is we have to make an effort. We have to exert ourselves. So I talked about in my family that we would take quiet time. We would also go to adoration as a family. We'd go about once couple times a month, a couple times a month, we were a certain distance away from a chapel that had Eucharistic exposition. Do you know how far away we were? We were one rosary away. We would get into the van, we'd pray a rosary on the way to the chapel. I'll tell you why in a minute. And then we would get there and I'd say, 30 minutes, 30 minutes, let's go. And so we would get in there and the kids would all take their spots I would be kneeling behind the last pew. And I got to be honest with you, my prayer was very often, Jesus, I got him here. Now it's on you. My prayer was, Jesus, please, I got him here. Please, you take over. Just be at work. And we would let the kids know, like, open your heart to Jesus and all that. And, And I can remember one time, so they would always, like, look back at me, and they would say, how much longer, right? I'd say, shh, right? And then like the, I would give him a 10-minute warning. Like, how much longer, 10? And the one who, Ariana, who saw it, she'd go like this to the brothers and sisters. <laughs> Passing on the good news, only 10 minutes left. And one time, Mary Catherine, uh, she was kneeling up front, and she came around to the back, and I'm like, what are you doing? You know you're not supposed to move for the half an hour. She said, Dad, how much more time? I said, three minutes. 
And she scurried back up to the front, knelt back down, put her hands in her head. And I'm like, oh, that's so beautiful. Using those three minutes well. I love that. And then all of a sudden she popped back up and came around. She said, Dad, it's time to go. And I'm like, what are you talking about? She said, I counted to 60 three times. <laughs> this is, these things really happened, right? So the second stage is exertion because it takes an effort. If you're going to go deeper into adoration, deeper into contemplative spirit, you're going to have to make an effort. The Catechism says that prayer is both a gift and requires a determined effort. Prayer is both a gift of grace. We can only do it with God's grace. But God graces us to also make an effort. So what's the effort that we make in order to get deeper into adoration? The first stage is this. I, I like to say it this way. When you're having people come over, there are three things you do. The first is you take out the trash. The second is you put things away. And then the third is you put things back in order. At least that's what we do at our house. All right? Get, get rid of all the trash, pick up stuff, put it back where it belongs, and then put everything back in order. That's similar to contemplative prayer. What is taking out the trash? Repentance. Repentance. The first thing to do if you want to go deeper into the ability of being quiet before the Lord is repent. Say to the Lord, Lord, I'm so sorry for those things that I've done that are weighing me down and holding me back. Please forgive me. I repent. If you're not sure of what to be uh, repenting of, Lord, I, I am so sorry that I don't know what to be sorry for. Seriously, it is a great way to get rid of that stuff that are blockages to your ability to pray, be, be present. So that's the first thing, is take out the trash through repentance. The second part of this is putting things away. So in the morning when I get up, um, I, I've shared this already, so I take prayer time in the morning, I get up before everybody else, and I'll take a time for quiet prayer. I, I read the Liturgy of the Hours and I, I pray quietly. But if I'm sitting there in that room and my kids have their homework out from last night or the shoes are there, what am I paying attention to? Grumble, 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 the shoes, the homework. And so it's distracting me. I need to get things back where they belong. And then I can be more attentive to the moment. This is also true in, with regards to our lives, our prayer lives. What does that look like? Distractions. Do you ever get distracted when you're praying? Lord, I'm going to now just be silent and still. Oh, I've got an itch. This itch is just bugging me. But worse than the itches on the outside, and by the way, this is why if you take a look at the contemplative posture, they sit, hands on their knees, back straight, and there's a posture that contemplatives have to not have their body be a point of focus so that they can go in. But once you learn how to be still with your body and your senses, like with the noises around you, what's the harder one? Quieting the brain. And that's where distractions come in, right? So if you have a fly buzzing around, what do you want to do? Get up, track that fly down. What happens in prayer? What holds back contemplative prayer? Is that we, Lord, I'm just going to be here with you. Lord, I'm just going to be here with you. What time is the soccer game? Wait a minute, am I supposed to be driving? 
oh, that meeting I have today. Oh, I'm so upset about that guy. Why did that kid treat me so bad in fifth grade? Like, good luck. All this stuff just starts getting stirred up in us on the inside. And that's a very humbling thing. It's like running. When you're learning to run, you're not going to run a marathon or a half a marathon or a half a mile. Good luck. Just stretch out and get a lap around the track to get started. Making this exertion to get rid of the distractions is learning how to not take ourselves too seriously and just to humbly admit when the distraction comes, just push it away. Okay, Lord, I'm back to you. Lord, I'm here present to you. The next distraction comes in and it's going to. Lord, I'm just going to push it away and I'm going to focus back on you. And if the next distraction comes and it, uh, oh, don't fall into the trap, let me just think this one through. Let me think this one through, then I'll finally put it to bed and then I'll be able to focus. It's a trap. So instead, learn how to just say, I'm just going to let it go away. Lord, I just give it to you. So everything becomes an opportunity to turn back to Jesus, even the distractions. Now, what's going to happen is, eventually, we'll quiet down, hopefully during that prayer time. But once you get into the habit of exerting yourself, the process of, of repenting, the process of getting things back in order are going to happen more quickly. And then you'll be in a position to say, okay, I'm not distracted, and I've done my repenting. I'm in the presence of Jesus. Now, when you're in the presence of Jesus, do you know what the first thing you're going to want to do is? Just pour out your heart. Do that. All of those people, those situations, those needs, those, those things happening in your life, pour them out. Open your heart to Jesus and pour them out. Why is that so important? Adoration involves a liturgical vessel. Who knows what that liturgical vessel is called? It's called a monstrance, right? A monstrance. And typically, one of the most common uh, forms of a monstrance is as a sun. It's like a sun. And the host is put into the middle of the monstrance that looks like a sun because it's radiating a sense of light and warmth and love. It's radiating presence. Monstrance comes from a Latin root that means to show, to display, to come out into the open. So in adoration, when you come before the Lord in adoration, the Lord is waiting to open and show himself to you. Guess how you prepare well to be ready for his showing himself to you? You show yourself to him. Open your heart. Pour your heart out. Bring all those needs, those people, those situations. Pour them out. And you know what's going to happen? Once you do that after a while, you're going to be done. You're going to say, I got all those people, all those situations, all those needs done. And now that I'm done, my heart is, guess what? Empty, open, available to receive the pouring in, to receive the giving of oneself to Jesus. Here's another quote from St. Mother Teresa of Calcutta. When the sisters are exhausted, up to their eyes in work, when all seems to go awry, they spend an hour in prayer before the Blessed Sacrament. 
This practice has never failed to bear fruit. They experience peace and strength. Again, Saint Teresa of Calcutta. This beautiful gift of adoration is that when we come, we repent, we get rid of the distractions, we pour out our heart, and then we can be in that place of contemplative union. I look at him, he looks at me. It's you looking at the fireworks display. It's you looking down at the beautiful baby that's asleep. It's you just gazing upon a beautiful work of art, a beautiful sunset, that contemplative attitude. You now take it here in prayer. But who is it that you're looking at? It's the revelation one Jesus. He's the one that's showing up. And so in our tradition, no words are necessary and no words are sufficient. It's not about saying anything. It's not about doing anything. It's about being together. That's the exertion stage. This then leads to the third stage. The third stage is extension. And then in the stage of extension, I begin to have more extended periods of flow in adoration. And so repentance, taking out the trash, all that stuff happens more quickly. And we have longer and longer periods of me being with him and he is with me. That was what, what the old man said in the church of the Curie of ours, who said to him, what are you doing here in the church? And he said, I'm here. I look at him and he looks at me. That's adoration. It's just gazing upon each other. Now, this is where you will begin to see the fruit of adoration. You'll begin to see the effects of being in the presence of Jesus without seeing the cause. Let me say that again. You'll begin to see the effects of adoration without experiencing the cause. Here's what I mean. You will come into adoration, you will go through that exertion, and you'll say, Lord, I just pour out, I'm so worried, I'm distressed. Lord, what's gonna happen? I just, oh, I empty it all, I just give it all to you, and I'm just here with you. And when you're done and you come out of adoration, there's a whole new level of trust that I have that everything's gonna be okay. I came confused and I come away clear. I came feeling empty and I come away full. I, I, I came distressed and I come away at peace. I don't know what happened. I didn't do anything. I didn't say a certain prayer. I didn't figure something out. I was with him. He was with me, and that presence transforms us. What happens in adoration? John eleven forty four. It's the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus, come out! And he comes out of the tomb. He was dead. Now he's alive, and he starts dancing a jig. No, he doesn't. Why? He's bound hand and foot with all of the the. Um, the, the, the cloth, the burial cloth, and the ties that would have tied that cloth together. And remember John eleven forty four. Unbind him and let him go free. Unbind. What did Lazarus have to do to be unbound and set free? What did he have to do? Not nothing. He had to not move. He had to be still. 
If you are willing to be still, you will find that Jesus will unbind you and let you go free. It's like being on the operating table. And, and the, the work of transformation that the Lord wants to do to deepen his, to, to stretch you and to deepen the experience of the love that he has for you, all of this happens by you, quote unquote, doing nothing except being with him. You want to come alive in faith? Come and be in the presence of the one who is life. John Paul II, Saint John Paul II. The church and the world have a great need of Eucharistic worship. Jesus waits for us in this sacrament of love. Let us be generous with our time in going to meet him in adoration and in contemplation that is full of faith and ready to make reparation for the great faults and crimes of the world. May our adoration never cease. But we're not done. There's more. Stage number five, four. Okay, there's six stages. We're only on number four, excess. Remember now, external stage, go to exertion, and then extension, extending that time of flow. Now there's the experience of excess. What is this? It's the experience of flow becomes the experience of overflow. Have you ever experienced the too muchness of God? There's a story about the, the Desert Fathers where they all went off and they prayed to have an encounter with God. And they were supposed to write, write about it. And this one monk comes back in as they gathered back together with his brothers. And he said, I had this encounter with God and I wrote it down. He said, what did he say? I don't know. I haven't looked. Let's look. So they opened it up together. And here was the page where he wrote down his encounter with God. God is big. God is big. How big is God? God is ineffable. Ineffable, that attribute of divinity, is that God is beyond our ability to express. You cannot express the one that you've encountered when you've encountered God. Have you had that encounter with Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament? Ask for it. Jesus I want to encounter the too muchness of you. I want to have an encounter with your love that's too much. Remember the St. Philip Neri experience. He prayed for the Holy Spirit to come, come, and the Holy Spirit came and filled him. Too much. It was the too muchness. It was the overflow. And he cried out, relent, relent. Back off. Pray for that. Pray that you would come into the presence of the Lord in adoration and that he would reveal the revelation one Jesus. That's who's really in whose presence we are right now. Let's be there and say, Lord, please unveil the depths of your divinity to me. Reveal yourself to me. I want to know your bigness. Have that encounter. What happened to Moses when he had that encounter with God in the mountain? He came down and what happened? His face shone with God's glory. He had to veil his face. What will happen to you? We'll talk about that in a minute. What's a sign that there's an excess in adoration? I didn't want to leave, but I knew I wasn't allowed to stay. That's excess. Your encounter with the Lord 
is so beautiful, glorious, majestic, intimate, personal, profound, you don't want to leave. Do you know when it's safe to stop praying? It's safe to stop praying when you don't want to. This is actually a, this is a, an interesting spiritual exercise. Do you want an interesting spiritual exercise? Tell your spouse, I'm going to go to church, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to stay there until I don't want to leave. How many times do you do your hour of adoration, and it's like, it's only been six minutes. Oh, my God. It's 8, 20, 32. When, when can I be done with this? I mean, come on. Let's be real. How often do we go spend time, and it's like, I got to put in my hour. Sorry, Lord. My hour's done. Woohoo! Let's go. Let me go watch a movie. Yes. How sad is that? And why is that? We haven't experienced excess. We haven't experienced the too muchness of God. If we had, we'd be like, please, Lord, let, let, give me more. I want more. But there's more. The fifth stage is the exposed stage. The exposed stage is when we transition from going to exposition to living an exposed life. Let me say that again. We don't just go to exposition. We don't just go to adoration, but we live an exposed life. See, what will happen is this. If you make a regular practice of going to adoration, do you know what's going to happen to you? You're going to get really good at taking out the trash. Lord, I just repent of all that stuff that gets in the way of our relationship and getting things in order, pouring out your life and emptying yourself out to the Lord. You know what's going to happen? You're going to get really good at being transparent. You're going to get really good at being authentic. You're going to show up visibly, externally, in a way that matches what's happening on the inside. And do you know what that does? It gives you a capacity to recognize when people aren't. Okay, let me see. Did you hear what I just said? You will recognize phonies. You'll recognize people who are not transparent. You'll recognize people who are talking, and it's like, you know what? You're saying these things to me, but there's a whole other dialogue happening inside of you right now. Do you ever have that experience? You realize that they're not being exposed. They're hiding. You will learn to live an exposed life. You will find that it's not, oh, it's that time of the week where I have to go to adoration because I committed to it. It's, no, I, I live towards adoration and I live from adoration because in adoration, I find the center of my sense of my identity in the presence of the Lord. Pope Benedict, in a world where there's so much noise, so much bewilderment, there is a need for silent adoration of Jesus concealed in the host. Be assiduous in the prayer of adoration Teach it to the faithful. It is a source of comfort and light, particularly to those who are suffering. There's so much to be experienced if we're willing to commit to this practice. The last stage is the Eucharistic stage. 
It's we begin to live a life centered around the Eucharist. Because what happens? You start going to adoration. You start going and being in the presence of the Lord in the tabernacle. Or you start going to adoration of the Blessed Sacrament. And you start having these encounters with the living Lord Jesus. All of a sudden it's going to dawn on you. Wait a minute. Jesus didn't say, take this all of you and look at it. What did he say? Take this all of you and eat it. This is my body given for you. And all of a sudden it's like, wait a minute. The revelation one Jesus, the one whose face shone brighter than the sun at its brightest, the one whose hair was white as snow white wool, whose voice was like the thunderous waters, whose word was like a a piercing two-edged sword that cuts to the deep, who is this priest and king, uh, burnished, uh, polished bronze, that Jesus who's present there is the Jesus who's presented here at Mass. That's the Jesus that I receive. And there's a very profound insight from St. Thomas Aquinas about what happens when you receive communion. He says, the proper effect. What does God intend? What's God's intention? The proper effect of receiving Holy Communion. What's God intending? What's his goal for you when you receive Holy Communion? The proper effect of receiving Holy Communion is the transformation of the receiver into Jesus. You become the one you receive. That's the proper effect of receiving Holy Communion. And all of a sudden, we realize something. When we go to adoration, exposition, what was the name of that thing? The liturgical instrument that's put on the altar is called the monstrance. The monstrance is that liturgical vessel in which the presence of Jesus is shown forth to those who are present in front of him. All of a sudden, we realize in receiving Holy Communion, we are a monstrance. You're a monstrance. You go into the world, and you can go into the world like Moses radiating God's glory. You can go into the world, those eyes blazing like fire. You look into the eyes of Jesus, you become that fire, and now you're going forth into the world. And you know what? As much as I like to think people need me, they don't need me. They need Jesus. They need to hear Jesus in my words. They need to sense Jesus in my presence. They need to experience Jesus in my deeds. If all I'm bringing out into the open are Catholic words, Catholic actions, that's not enough. That's not the call. The call that we have as Catholic disciples is to continue bringing the presence of the glorified Lord Jesus into this world. That's what the world is desperate for, Jesus. And we can grow in our capacity to do that and be transformed in the process if we are willing to enter into adoration. It's such a tragedy. Like, Jesus doesn't hide the, the clear, profound solutions to the church's problems today. 
I want to end with a quote. This is from Hans Urs von Balthasar. He says, Holiness consists in enduring God's glance. It may appear mere passivity to withstand the look of an eye, but everyone knows how much exertion is required when this gazing upon each other occurs in an essential encounter. Our glances mostly brush by each other indirectly, or they quickly turn away, or they give themselves not personally, but only socially. So too do we constantly flee from God into a distance that is theoretical, rhetorical, sentimental, aesthetic, or most frequently pious. Or we flee from him to external works, And yet the best thing would be to surrender one's naked heart to the fire of this all-penetrating glance. The heart itself would then have to catch fire if it were not always artificially dispersing the rays that come to it as through a magnifying glass. Such enduring of God's glance would be the opposite of a Stoic's hardening his face. It would be yielding, declaring oneself beaten, capitulating, entrusting oneself, casting oneself into him. It would be childlike loving, since for children the glance of the father is not painful. With wide open eyes, they look into his. Augustine's magnificent formula on the essence of eternity. Videntem videre to look at him who is looking at you. You will grow in your Christ-likeness. You will grow in your capacity to bring Christ to the world when you grow in the intimate, profound union with Jesus Christ himself by being in his holy presence in adoration. Adoration will change your life. It can change your marriage can change your kids. It'll change the church. But we have to be willing to undergo these stages if we are truly going to become monstrances in this world. Let's close with prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, good and gracious God, we do thank you and praise you for all of the ways that you love us and take care of us and in a very special way for the ways that you are present to us in adoration. I pray, Lord, that you would foster and stir within us contemplative grace, a contemplative attitude, that we would learn how to be still and know that you are God. Please, Lord, increase within us the fervor and devotion to meet you in adoration. And Jesus, reveal your glory to us in a way that's even overwhelming. And we thank you, Lord, for doing that. We make this prayer in your holy name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.